unified with Christ in the crucifixion? Do you feel unified with Christ today in his, in his death? I thank the uh, musicians for leading us so clearly and so well to the cross and to remembering what it was that Christ did on our behalf and, and that uh, child-appropriate commentary that was read, read as well, um, what Christ accomplished for us. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you and we're a thankful people. We understand, and as has been said in a, in a small way maybe, the salvation that was won for us by your Son on the cross. We would understand better. We want to understand more. And we realize that is only possible because of you, because of the truth that you've shared with us, because of your spirit in our hearts and lives that which communicated your grace to us in the first place. And so we ask that as we gather here on a morning like this, as we look into your word and as we continue to worship and praise you, that there would be a deepening of our understanding, that there would be a closeness in our relationship with you for all that you have done. So thank you, Lord. Thank you, yes, and we ask that you would lead us on as we continue to meditate on the cross and our Christ, our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name, amen. So I'd like to turn your attention this morning to Psalm 22. We're going to look at the cross through the prophetic lens of Psalm 22. Now you might be thinking that I've taken a major swing from the, my wariness of the prophetic. I've talked to you about that, how I am wary of prophecy and how some have misused it and and even my own, sometimes our lack of understanding, all the details of the prophetic. But you might think I've swung from a wariness to a, I'm binging on prophecy now because, I mean, we're going through Daniel and here we are looking at the cross through the prophetic lens, as I said, of, of Psalm 22. But that is not the case. I think we, it's appropriate for us because right now, because of what we're studying, we have a heightened understanding of of the role and the purpose of prophecy in the plan of God. And so as we go through this Easter season, it would be helpful for us to look at it from that vantage point, this prophetic vantage point. Because we know that prophecy has a very real purpose for us in our lives. It has a reassuring effect. It's truth uh, calms us as we see that God knew all along what he was doing as we face the challenges and threats in this life in our own personal lives we recognize no God knows and has always known and has taken many through much worse situations and we're reassured we can also identify and be educated in our connection our personal connection 
with truth as we consider prophecy and we see how we fit in these great truths. And we're also changed our outlook and the application of truth to our life as we realize what it is we're in the middle of. So we recognize Psalm 22 immediately as a, um, as a prophetic psalm because of the sayings, the phrases, the images that are presented in it. We, we can't get past the first line, can we? Where it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we might be tempted to think that Jesus plagiarized David's psalm while he was on the cross as he cried out, except for the fact that Jesus is the eternal God in human form. He was before David, and that came up, didn't it, in one of those confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders, and they were questioning him on his identity. And Jesus brought up this fact that in Psalm 110, David calls the Messiah Lord. And in Matthew 22, 41-46, to 46, Jesus brings this up and he says, If the Christ is David's son, then how can David call him Lord? If the Christ is, is only David's son, only the seed, the line of David, how can he call him Lord? To which the religious leaders had absolutely no reply. In another situation, this one recorded in John 8, Jesus confounded the religious leaders with the statement, before Abraham was, I am. I existed. I was there. Once again, leading them to want to stone him because he was claiming divinity, godness. So as we read this first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We could ask ourselves the question, who is using whose words? <laughs> yes, David wrote them before the event of the cross, but Jesus was God before David even thought to write these words. I'm reminded of something I heard years ago. It was a comedian who was trying to uh, start a lawsuit against a singer who had gone before saying that singer had stolen one of his songs and the guy he was talking to said, well, how could he do that? He wrote that song years ago where the guy says, I time traveled and I was before him and I, I showed him the song and then he wrote it down and now he stole my song. And as ludicrous as that is, we think we're in the same sort of situation here, a real situation. Jesus Christ being the one who inspired David to write this psalm. Write his words. Thousands of years before he would use those words. And I bring this up and I, I want to plant us in the middle of this, this sort of confusion. Not because I'm going to in this 
message accuse anyone of plagiarism, but I simply want to be in the position where we are ready to look at this psalm as it should be understood. This is David's psalm. He wrote it about himself and his situations. This is the Lord's psalm. This psalm is a prophetic look at what would take place in the crucifixion. And we also need to understand this is our psalm too. So we begin with it being David's psalm. This past inspiration reveals David is in unity with the crucifixion. As we begin the psalm, we need to be reminded of the process of inspiration. Many times, biblical authors were writing, and yes, they they were writing what they believed was from the Lord. They were writing what the Lord would have them write. They believed that. They were writing about themselves personally. And I think many times, not understanding how much of the message was from God and how much of the message was about God. We remember enough of David's life to know that he's writing about his own experience here. We know his story. We know that that he went through many challenges, many difficult things, many times when, when he felt like the Lord was not looking out for him. And then he went through many times where he was overjoyed and walking in the presence of the Lord. We also know a bit about David as a person. We know he was one of those artistic, emotional individuals. And he would go from one extreme to the other through the highs and the lows. And we see this seesaw pattern throughout the psalm. We jump from suffering and groaning to salvation and glory. We could say from pouting to praise, but that doesn't sound very theologically correct. So we'll say from agonizing affliction to awestruck adoration. Let's read the first five verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Why? Why does David go from agony to exaltation? Why does he he bounce back and forth like this between affliction and adoration? Because it's part of the human experience. It's part of what life is in a fallen world. But what I want us to notice here is that the basis of this this swing in his temperament has to do with, it has to do with the proximity of God. 
how close he is sensing that God is. You see, he starts out feeling that God is far away. God has forsaken him, he feels. He's so far off. The sentiment is repeated through other low times in this psalm. If you look ahead in verse 11 and verse 19, again the question comes, or maybe even we could say the accusation, where are you God? You're so far, you're so far away. That is his feeling. But then, even in those next few verses, three to five, we see that David is elated. He's moved to worship God when he perceives God as being near. And he lifts up his voice. But something to note here, and that is that worship is not simply the result of God's conspicuousness. <laughs> oh, it seems like God's nearby. I want to worship. I'm conscious of God's presence. He's everywhere present, but I'm conscious, so I want to worship. Also, we note in this that worship brings God to the foreground. Worship is an instrument that makes him more apparent than he would be were we not worshiping him. You see what it says in verse 3. You're a holy God, holy, separate, but enthroned on the praises of Israel. Present accounted for on his throne. We're aware of that, aren't we? When we worship. This is a very human psalm and we see David is very human. He's very human yet very connected to the Lord. His experiences reflect the Lord's experiences. Not simply the writing of the psalm, but his life. And so we're challenged with this. David, his connection to the crucifixion thousands of years before it ever occurred because of inspiration. God breathing these words through him, through his life, him writing them down. Next, I want us to consider the future indicators that reveal Christ's unity with the crucifixion. You might be saying, Christ's unity with the crucifixion? Yes, <laughs> he is the person, the central character in the crucifixion. But we see his connection to it through this prophetic psalm presented here. And I would have to say that this is the easy part as we work through this psalm. We have already mentioned verse 1. We can also see in verses 6 through 8, it talks about the environment 
the mocking, the shaking of heads, the challenge that he save himself or be saved by God. And yes, David was talking about himself as a follower of God and people challenging him in that way. But as we read about the crucifixion in Matthew, Matthew's gospel, 27, verse 39 to 43, the same thing comes up. As Jesus hangs on the cross, people walk by, making faces, shaking their head. Physician, heal yourself. He saved others. He can't save himself. If you're the son of God, then get down off the cross. But as we move into the heart of the psalm, and we read about messianic suffering in this prophetic psalm, we see how tied it is to Jesus. Let's look at verse 14. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Reminiscent of Christ hanging by his arms on the cross and what we know of crucifixion in terms of the torture. As your full body weight pulls your body apart. Verse 15 My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. We remember Christ, one of his cries from the cross as he says, I thirst. Calls out for a drink as he dries up because the fluids of his body are draining from him. Verse 16, they have pierced my hands and feet. Needs no explaining. The nails that held him on the cross. Verse 18, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And if we read John's account of the crucifixion, we see this played out in the midst of the cross event. As the soldiers gambled, divided his clothes and gambled for his cloak. As we consider these references, direct references, prophetic references to the crucifixion, we, we say, yes, these words were written by David, but they were inspired by an all-knowing God. And I remind you again, this all-knowing God foresaw and planned these events. Peter, in at Pentecost, when he was preaching, he said, you crucified him, but in Acts 2.23, says it was determined by God. An all-knowing God, an all-loving God who chose beforehand what means he would use to show his grace. Greater love has no man than this, 
that a man lay down his life for his friends. The God who created this world created a world where a life would be the greatest thing that anyone could sacrifice for someone else. And he did it for this purpose. That he could show his love for mankind. And so he would accept the human experience. He would come into this world and he would be afflicted, he would be in agony, he would suffer alongside of us and beyond us. He would even perceive that distance we often perceive between us and God. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. And Jesus' experience of suffering, his agony, his affliction was worse than any of ours in terms of the physical and in terms of the spiritual. He who was one with God the Father. who had never experienced any separation from the Father, was somehow cut off. In order that he might be the one worthy of our awe and our adoration. Let's keep moving along. We looked at the past inspiration. Think of the, the future indicators. And then finally, the, the present indwelling that reveals our unity in this crucifixion event. The last part of this psalm leads us to consider how we fit in to the crucifixion. I would definitely say we have the better part. Yes, there's still agony and awe for us in our lives. But not the agony of David's uncertainty or the depth of the Lord's affliction. And this last section begins with a recognition of our need to worship, a call to praise. Here's what it says in verse 22 and 23. I will tell of your name to my brothers, David writes. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. We realize this is a call to us. A call to exalt him, to lift him up, to go beyond uh, very human and physical experience where we just sort of see our own lives to looking upwards to our God and to the salvation 
that he accomplished for us in the cross. And I would say that is our greatest struggle in this life, looking beyond what we have going on in our own immediate and physical lives. But as we read down through these verses, there are three words that I would like to key in on that I believe will help us pull a little closer our Lord and Savior and an understanding of what it is he went through and what it is he accomplished for us on the cross. As we read down through these next verses, I want you to look with me at verse 26. It says, The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. You see, as David writes, he continues to bounce back and forth between uh, the, the agony and the adoration. But as he talks about affliction, as he talks about suffering, we get the sense that there's a redemption of our suffering. We understand, first of all, in verse 23, that Sorry, in verse 24, that God does not despise or abhor the afflicted or the affliction of the afflicted, it says. He has not hidden his face from us. When we suffer, when Christ suffered, God doesn't turn away, doesn't turn up his nose. He doesn't despise those who suffer for him. And challenge to think about that. It says in verse 26, the afflicted will be satisfied. How do we, as we go through this life and as we face the challenges of this life, in relationship with God, where do we find our satisfaction? No one enjoys suffering, otherwise they wouldn't call it suffering. And yet, as Christ went to the cross, we're told in Hebrews, it was for the joy that was before him. Because he knew what he was accomplishing. He knew why he was doing it. He knew he was accomplishing the will of the Father. And I'm drawn back to that verse in Colossians 1.24 again. Where Paul, inspired by God, says that we are filling up the sufferings of Christ. We, the body of Christ, Suffering in this world are completing the suffering of Christ. It's not that we are accomplishing grace for ourselves or anyone else. Christ did that on the cross. But as we live our lives practically, honoring the Lord, living for him, facing the challenges that we face and glorifying God, we're satisfied knowing 
It is for him that we, we suffer. And there are times when that's tremendously apparent. We, we lose, maybe financially, by not doing something that we should not do that is illegal or immoral. We might suffer in this world's eyes because we say, no, I will act righteously. I will honor the Lord. It might be something as simple as stubbing our toe, hitting our thumb with a hammer, and we feel physical suffering. But do we turn that back to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm living this life for you. And somehow in the midst of this situation, even as arbitrary as this suffering may seem, I know that you are a sovereign God. And you have a purpose for every thing that happens to someone who is walking with you through this life. God has is sovereign, and God has chosen this way for you, for me, for us. The circumstances we face are of his choosing. The issues we have are a part of his plan, and they are to be the backdrop of our witness his glory in this world. Are we satisfied with that? Have we submitted to God's sovereign plan? See, we come to this moment and we want to say, I understand the cross. But it's not just about this moment. It's not just about this day, this service, this, this time. It's about our lives and the way we understand God's proximity is saying, I am satisfied, Lord, with what you have given me. This is the training, the daily training that we have that helps us understand the significance behind the cross and Christ's suffering. Because we understand the call on our lives, too, to suffer, to suffer as well, and to say, Lord, this is about you. Help me to walk in righteousness, honoring you through this time. Are we satisfied? The second word comes up in that same verse. But it is present in many other verses. It talks about those who seek him shall praise the Lord. And I want us to consider that. Seeking him in adoration. Seeking to worship him. And we've, we've hit that theme throughout this psalm. But here again in this last section, this last third. In verse 23 and verse 25. Then it even 
turns a corner in verse 27 where it's talking about worshiping the Lord. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Verse 25, for you, or from you, sorry, comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. Worship permeates these verses. And we're told those who seek him shall praise the Lord. I know we've often been reminded, but we need to remember again the most important activity that we have as a creature in this world is to worship. It should be our first response when we get up in the morning. It should begin our day. We should begin our day worshiping, and it is our greatest responsibility. Every created being, it's their responsibility, but especially those who live in relationship with the Lord. We understand the calling on our lives to exalt him, to lift up his name, to speak words of truth about who he is. This is why we're here. This is why we live in the way we do. This is why we've been created as image bearers. And this is a responsibility for every day of the week. We know that God is worthy, worthy of our praise. Are we not inspired to worship him as we consider all that he's done for us and considering the purpose that he's given to us in our daily lives? If we're not inspired, seek him. Seek him in his word. in meditation and prayer. If we consider who he is, if we take time to consider what he has done, we will be drawn to worship him. Let's seek him in adoration. The final thoughts I want to pull from this psalm, the final word. First of all, being satisfied, then seeking. Satisfied with affliction, seeking him in adoration. And the third thing, serving him always. We read on. And as I said, it turns a corner in verse 27, it talks about all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. And it's talking about worship, but it's starting to focus on this idea of it being a continual thing, not just continually in somebody's life, but continually throughout the life of this world, generation to generation to generation, there will be a people for his name, a people to lift up and exalt his name. 
says, all the prosperous, verse 29, of the earth shall eat and worship before him, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. We see in verse 30, we're called to serve him always. Posterity shall serve him. There will be this ongoing testimony of service to the Lord in the world. And I love it when we show up in the scripture in these ways where the word of God seems to be speaking to us who have lived or who live so long afterwards. We're addressed in this ancient book. Remember Jesus praying for all those who will believe in John's gospel. We remember when Jesus tells Thomas, more blessed are those who don't see but still believe. And when I hear that, I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's us. We are the ones who will believe. We are the ones who, who did not see Christ personally, but, but we believe his gospel. We are his followers. And here in this psalm, people who are yet unborn are referenced. Those who will serve the Lord without having been a part of this, this particular history, we will be proclaiming his righteousness. We'll be living out his righteousness to the world and to the next generation of people who will follow him. And so we see that we're being called to serve him continually. A perpetual service. Glorifying of God from generation to generation. We've received the gospel. We've believed in Christ. We are living with Christ in the affliction of this life and the adoration of our service or of our Lord in our service. And as we live out this life of righteousness, his righteousness, it includes us again turning to God, turning from sin, remembering what Christ did as he went to the cross and died for our sin and us dying to our sin. Are you personally 
part of this perpetual service? Are you coming gathering with us today? Are we here together? Remembering not just what Christ has done, but what he has done for you, for me, for us. When it comes to remembering someone's life at their death, we can always tell those who knew the person best, those who are touched most deeply by the loss of that individual, by that person's suffering and departure. those who were closest, right? Those who knew the person best, those who lived with that person. And that's what these three words are all about. Being satisfied with the affliction of this life, knowing that it's something that Christ has shared with us for God's purposes. His will be done. It's seeking Him in in adoration and worship, lifting up our hearts, opening up our mouths. Yes, publicly together as a congregation, but also personally, alone, exalting Him, lifting up His name, and serving Him turning to God, turning away from our sin. Embracing his crucifixion in our own life. Dying to sin. So that we might understand, honor, and know him better. Lord, help us as we continue, not only through this service, but through this day and through our lives, to live, to walk, fellowship with you, to live as you have called us to live, understanding the the struggle of this life, the suffering, and being satisfied with it. You've called us to it. You embraced it yourself. Help us, Lord, to continually seek you in worship. We know that you are here. You're everywhere present. But as we lift up your name, we're turning our hearts toward you. We're recognizing more profoundly your presence with us. And Lord, may we have lives, live lives of service to you. May we willing, willingly put away sin, not simply that which is the most obvious, the most evident examples of sin, but those things in our lives personally, those things in our heart which are obstacles in our relationship with you, 
and they are obstacles to our witness for you. Lord, you are here. You came into this world and you lived as a man and you died as a man so that we might have a fellowship with you. Lord, you are here. You're here in this moment, in this time of congregational worship. We pray that you would help us to draw near to you fearlessly, not simply fear of the cross and the challenges that it brings to us, but also a fearlessness about what we might lose of ourselves. Help us, Lord, to die with you to our sin and our sinfulness, to our self-exaltation. Help us to remember who you are and what you have done for us. Giving your life as a sacrifice, a payment for our sin so that you might bring us to God. Thank you. Amen.